Well, I'm sure that you all are aware of the fact that there's a new pope in Rome. Of course, that's been heavily covered in the news media. And so, really, if you've been paying attention to current events at all, you know about the naming of a new pope in Rome. Now, the news media has been stressing the fact that apparently this individual who's been named the new pope is quite a common man, sort of a humble character, uh, very down-to-earth, an average sort of guy, according to the reports that are made about him in the news. But even though that may be the case, there are still, did you know, that there are still specific rules about how you were to approach him. If you were ever to be in the presence of the Pope, there's a very specific regimen or protocol that you're expected to follow if you are in his presence. Uh, For instance, if you were to ever meet the Pope, you would be expected to kiss the ring on his right hand. And then, of course, you're not to speak until he speaks to you. He must break the the conversation barrier first. He's the first one to speak. Then you may speak to him, but you are always to address him as uh, your holiness or holy father, if you can imagine. That's how you are expected to address him. And you can only touch him to the extent of taking his hand, to shake his hand or to take his hand. Is uh, That's all the touching you can do. Now, these are the rules about how you are to approach the Pope if you ever happen to be in the presence of the Pope or Rome. Chances of any of us ever doing that, of course, effectively zero. That's not going to happen, but you should know that these rules are in place. All of that, of course, is completely non-biblical. In fact, the whole arrangement of the Catholic Church with the Pope and the Cardinals and the Bishops and all of that that we've been hearing about in the news in the last few weeks, completely outside the realm of what the Bible describes. The Bible says nothing about that. It's completely without Bible authority. It's just wrong, and we understand that to be the case. We don't have a pope. In the Lord's Church, we don't have a pope. Instead, we have local congregations that are organized in accordance with what we read in the pages of our New Testament. Now, what we do have in the local church is that we have elders in the local church that oversee the work of local churches, And the question could be asked, how should we approach them? What should be our attitude toward elders? What should be the relationship we have with them? Should we be kissing a ring on their finger? Addressing them by special titles? The answer to that, of course, is obviously no. But we do want to spend some time in our study this morning talking about our relationship with elders, how we, as members of a local congregation, ought to relate to the elders who oversee the work of the local church That's our study for a few minutes this morning. Before we get further into that study, let us stop to thank you for being present uh, and and for the encouragement that you give us by your presence here this morning. We we thank you and we appreciate that very much. We have visitors this morning, as we typically do, and we're very grateful for our visitors, and we want you to come back every time you have a chance. If you have any questions about what we do here, for instance, if you were to have a question about how we are organized and by what method we do our work, please ask those questions. And we'll be glad to explain that. We hope and try very hard to be able to give a thus saith the Lord, a book, chapter, and verse answer to those questions. We want to have Bible authority for all that we do. And so if you have questions, please ask them. Thanks again for being here today. What about our relationship with the elders? 
If we were to take a, a poll, if we were to ask for a show of hands, we won't, but if we were to ask for a show of hands, how many here would like to see the elders do a good job? How many here would like for the elders to be very effective in the work that they do? I hope every hand would go up. But of course, uh, the, effectiveness, the effectiveness of the elders and the work that they do is uh, very much linked with our relationship with them and our cooperation with them in helping them do the important work that they have to do. And so I think it is an important question and worthy of our consideration to talk about our relationship with the elders of the local church. We're going to take a very simple approach to this this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at four Bible texts that talk about this, that make plain statements concerning our attitude toward the elders, and just try to paint the the full picture of how we ought to relate with them. Let's start out uh, with some of the instructions that are found in the passage that Anthony read for us earlier from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. Let's go to that text. It says, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. In that passage, one of the things that we're told to do is to know the elders. Those who He's obviously talking about those who are over you. That would be the elders of the church. And our instruction here is that we're supposed to know them. Do you know the elders? You know, I think hopefully every member of, of this local congregation would be able to identify who the elders are. We know at least their name. If you don't even know the names of the elders, who they are, We've got some serious problems that need to be addressed immediately. Hopefully you know who they are, but this expression means more than that. I remember years ago uh, when I was in high school, starting as a freshman in high school, all through high school and part of the way through college, I worked in the hardware store in our hometown. And uh, uh, there was a, another older fellow who worked there, and of course we spent a lot of time talking in the course of our duties around the hardware store. He, in his early days, had been a milkman uh, in a big city. And he talked about how that he, he didn't drive a truck on his milk route. He had a, a horse-drawn milk wagon, and he delivered milk from that horse-drawn wagon. But he said he could, as they, as they went through town, he would get his little carrying basket, and he'd put in what he knew he needed for the next two or three houses that he would be <coughs> delivering to. And he would take off, and he would go to the door, and then cut through a backyard and down an alley and across another backyard. The horse would just keep walking. And the horse would go down, make the next corner, go down and stop and wait for him when he arrived at, the, at, at a certain spot. The horse knew him. He knew the route, and he knew where he would be, and he knew what to expect. That horse knew his master. Well, that's what we're talking about here when we talk about knowing the elders. We're supposed to know them. We're supposed to understand about them. It's more than just knowing what their names are or identifying them. It's a a recognition and an acknowledgement, and it's a close working relationship that needs to exist. It's an understanding of the particular challenges of the job that they have, uh, of the uh, very incredible responsibilities that they have on their shoulders, and an appreciation for the work that they do. If we know them, I think all of these kind of things uh, come to play. We should know the elders. The other thing that this passage says is that we're supposed to esteem them. 
The, to esteem them means to regard highly or favorably, to appreciate the value of something. Every once in a while, I get in the kitchen to do something. Now, those of you who know me know I am no cook in the kitchen. I try to stay out of the kitchen as much as possible except to eat there. But whenever I do try to do something in the kitchen, it's not uncommon for Cindy to walk in, see what I'm doing, and say, oh, no, no, don't do that. Don't use that dish. Don't use that utensil. In other words, she has maybe special dishes, uh, a, a particular knife that she reserves for a, a, a one kind of a job and not another. Well, I don't know these things. You know, I don't have an appreciation for them. She has a, an esteem for certain things in the kitchen for their value and their specific purpose that I don't understand. She esteems them. I don't. She has a better understanding of those things than I do, obviously. Well, the idea of esteeming the elders should be that way. We should esteem them. We should recognize their unique value and, uh, and view them very favorably for the work that they do. Notice here that this is a command. We're, to com- we're commanded to esteem the elders. So we need to work at developing that attitude toward the elders of the local church. You, you might also notice it doesn't say just to esteem them, but it says to esteem them very highly. So we're to have a very high appreciation for the value and for the work that they do. Notice, esteem them very highly, but not because he's one of my personal best friends. I esteem him highly because... Personally, we are on a best friend status. Now, I hope we have a close relationship, but this doesn't say esteem him because he is your best friend. It doesn't say esteem him because you happen to agree with him about every judgment call that's ever made. It doesn't say that. It it doesn't say esteem him because he's a perfect man and he never makes a mistake. It says esteem him very highly in love for the work's sake. That's why we esteem them highly. We esteem them highly because we see this as a very important work. It's very essential. We need what they do. We consider it a valuable thing, and therefore we esteem them very highly. So from that first text, 1 Thessalonians, I said we're going to look at four texts. The first one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, tells us that we are to know them and to esteem them. So we're trying to build a picture of what our relationship with the elders ought to be like those, I think, are a couple of very important considerations for us to, to uh, remember. The next passage we want to look at is 1 Timothy 5, beginning at verse 17. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, it says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. All right, let's break this down and see what things are mentioned here that we need to put into practice. First of all, it says... Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. We're supposed to honor them. What about honor? We understand the idea of giving honor to someone. For instance, some of our students from time to time will be recognized for special accomplishments in an honors ceremony, right? We understand that. When there's an honor ceremony at school, it means that we are paying special recognition 
And again, we're offering our respect for what they had been able to accomplish. So this would go closely in hand with the points that we've already made from the previous text. We're supposed to honor the elders, appreciate them, give them a degree of respect for the work that they do. What's that second honor? Notice he says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of a double honor. Well, if if honor one is to appreciate and respect them, what's the second honor? I believe that what Paul's talking about here is that under certain situations, providing for financial and material support for the elders would be authorized. Uh, Notice in verse 18, uh, it says that they are, he talks about the laborer being worthy of his reward. Uh, And that would be part of that double honor. The laborer is worthy of his reward. Uh, I think Philip's translation of the New Testament says that the elder is worthy of respect and of adequate salary. It's interesting. Uh, We need to give more consideration to that. That's a practice uh, that is biblical. Uh, It has been practiced before. Even here we have in the past done that. Uh, If that would become appropriate, it certainly could be done. Now, this instruction here is balanced by 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, which says that the elders are not to serve for filthy lucre's sake. In other words, the elder is not to be motivated to, to hold that office and to do that work because he wants to get rich by doing so. That shouldn't be in his thought process at all. And of course, we're not, we're not terribly worried about that. We don't see that as being a great threat to us today. But again, double honor is what the elders are to receive. I think a very important part of this instruction is against an elder receive not an accusation Uh, here's a command a strict warning for us as we serve together in a local congregation do not receive an accusation against an elder now what's stated of course is don't receive the accusation what's implied would also be there don't accuse an elder so don't accuse an elder don't receive an accusation against an elder i believe that the apostle by inspiration added that instruction because he knew, the Lord knew, the Holy Spirit revealed that elders are in a particularly susceptible position. Uh, They are very prone to be unduly criticized and accused by some who are not mature in the faith and some who have wrong motives. might bring accusation against the elder. my own experience has been, and perhaps yours as well, is that you hear sometimes people who are always griping and complaining about everything that the elders say and do. Uh, that's wrong. Against an elder, receive not an accusation. That's what it says. Implied is don't make such accusation. And we need to appreciate the importance of that instruction. We need to hold them in a special position, uh, honoring them as we have already noted, appreciating the work they do, and therefore shielding them against unfair, unkind, unjust, unmerciful accusations. We need to be careful about that. I think all of us can improve in that matter. Now, there is a qualified exception here, uh, except before two or three witnesses. We know, as we've been studying in the Old Testament, that if serious charges were brought against someone, it had to be not on the basis of what just one person said, but there had to be two or three witnesses who could confirm such a serious allegation. And that's the kind of qualification that we have here. 
We're not saying that the elders would never do anything wrong, never be subject to an accusation. But it shouldn't be done frivolously. And if there is such an accusation that must be made, it's a very serious matter and needs to be well established by two or three witnesses. And then, of course, uh, what this is, what this tells us is that elders are not perfect. They certainly can make error. They can stray. They can go wrong. If they do, if it's found that they have left the true course, then they are to be rebuked. They're not above being rebuked uh, if it becomes necessary, but it needs to be done very carefully. And I think as Christians working together in a local congregation, we need to take those instructions very seriously. So, from this second text, what are we going to do? We're going to honor them, and we're going to not receive an accusation against them, but if it is an established charge, if they've certainly gone wrong, then they are to be rebuked. Let's look at another text in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17 tells us more about our relationship with the elders. It says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. There are two things here that we're supposed to do that are described in that expression, obey them, that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. So to obey and submit are instructions that you and I have. We have a, a duty here, an obligation, something we must do. We must obey them and submit to them. When you start to think about it, God's plan for our lives uh, uh, requires obedience and submission in lots of realms. Uh, As citizens to the government, we're supposed to obey and submit. Wives are to obey and submit to their husbands. Children are to obey and submit to their parents. Ultimately, we are all to obey and submit to the Lord. Uh, In every one of those relationships, of course, it requires humility on our part to take our role to submit and obey. In like fashion, we're to obey and submit to the elders. Now, this is not just a general principle, but in actual practice, we are to obey and submit to the elders. Uh, In what realm would that be? We've discussed this before. I think it's important to identify in what realm would we obey the elders and submit to them. Well, we're not to obey and submit to them in matters of doctrine, Paul taught in First Corinthians, excuse me, in Galatians chapter one, verses eight and nine. If anybody teaches a different gospel, we shouldn't give way to them, not at all. Not even if an angel from heaven would come and preach a different gospel, would we submit to that angel who came from heaven? So, if the elders of the church began to teach us to do things that are contradictory to what's taught in the Bible, our duty would be to say, "No, we will not do that." So we're not going to submit to them in matters of doctrine. So in, in what area, then, would we obey and submit to the elders? Well, I think clearly the only thing that's left, then, is in areas of judgment. As we work together in a local congregation, judgments must be made. They must be based upon the authority of the Scriptures. But based upon what the Scriptures tell us to do, then judgment must be made in the carrying out of those commands. Uh, the elders will ultimately make those judgments. Again, they have to be in accordance with the authority of Scripture. But when those judgments have been made, our job is to obey and submit. Not to second-guess and question, not to gripe and complain and grumble, but to obey and submit. Again, I can't stress enough that we're not talking about matters of doctrine here, not at all. 
But when it comes to the necessary judgments that must be made in accordance with Bible authority, it may not be that that would be my judgment. Now, that's not the way I would go about that. That's not the course I would pursue. But finally, when the elders say, this is what we're going to do, our job is to get involved, to submit and obey uh, in all things. This instruction, of course, for the elders is balanced by 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, when it says that the elders are not to lord it over God's heritage. And so the elders are warned, don't, don't become overlords. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of brethren are real worried about that. They're real worried that the elders are going to lord it over the flock. And so they're going to make sure that that doesn't happen. And basically, when they say they're going to make sure that the elders are not lording it over the flock... What they're saying is, I'm not about to do what this says. I'm not going to obey and submit. Our job is to obey and submit. The elders are warned, don't become overlords. In all my years in the Lord's church, I'm not sure I ever saw an elder lording it over the flock. Now, there may have been a time or two, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, possibly a time or two in my personal experience over many years, I saw some elders get close to that. I'm not sure I ever saw them cross the line. But I tell you what, I have seen lots of times, and that's members who fail to obey and submit. That's very common. And so this, for you and me, this is our worry. The elders need to be careful not to lord over the flock. And again, I don't think there's a great, uh, horrible danger of that, although it's possible. I don't think we have to worry about it a whole lot. Here's where we have to worry. We have to worry whether we're being obedient and submissive like we should. We are to obey and submit. All right. Uh, Again, the reason for that is because they watch for our soul. That's why it's important for us to do this. This this is about eternity. This is about our spiritual well-being. They watch for our souls. Finally, from that text, obey and submit. Hebrews 13, 17. Again, we're trying to build a, a whole picture here. Know them, esteem them, honor them, receive not an accusation against them, but rebuke them if they are found to be needing such rebuke. Obey and submit to them. One more text from James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. James chapter 5, beginning verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of, the faith shall, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. Um, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. When it says that if any is sick, they're to call for the elders of the church. What does that mean? Especially what kind of sickness is under consideration there? Well, there's two possible understandings of this passage. One is that this is talking about physical sickness. And if a person back in those first century times when miracles were being performed, if they were sick, they were to call for the elders and the elders would anoint them with oil and they would be healed. Um, I think that's a possibility, although I, I don't favor that explanation. A, a couple of things that I think are wrong with that is that it would assume that all elders everywhere in every church of the first century had miracle-working powers. I don't think that that could be established or proved. Uh, secondly, it seems to put the elders more in the business of being physical doctors than spiritual overseers. The, the text, I think, is talking about spiritual things. Another thing that argues against them being able to heal physical illness is that a 100% success rate is guaranteed. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise them up. 
No doubt about it. Well, that doesn't always happen physically. Even in the first century when miracles were being performed, not all sick people got well. But this is a guarantee. And so I think it's talking about calling for the elders of the church when you're suffering some spiritual sickness, when you're suffering some spiritual weakness. Call for them, and they will pray with you and work with you, and you can get past that. You can be made well from this spiritual malady that is afflicting you. That, that's a whole study in itself. But regardless of, of the, what this may be meaning, I think that's the right understanding, but we could talk about it more later. My emphasis here is on the expression, call for the elders of the church. Do you have a need? Call for the elders. Some, sometimes folks act like the elders are mind readers. I haven't told them what's bothering me. I haven't told them what's on my mind. I haven't told me what, what issue is, is bothering me. But they should have come and talked to me. Well, they're not mind readers, you know. They're not, they're not able to read my mind and know what I'm dealing with. If I have an issue, let me call for them. If there's something bothering me, if I need help, let me call for them. We need to communicate with them. They are qualified and appointed. And we tie their hands if we do not cooperate in this regard. If there is a need, call for them. Communicate with them. Don't talk around behind their back. Don't complain and grumble and gripe. Call for the elders of the church and let them deal with the situation. But they need to know about it. And you need to communicate to them so that they can. And so our emphasis from this important text is call for the elders of the church. All right, there, I'm not saying this is a comprehensive list, but I think there's a list of really important things regulating our relationship with the elders in the local church. Know them, esteem them, honor them, receive not an accusation, obey, submit, call and send for them. I'll tell you something, if we will do that, we're talking to us this morning, those of us who are members of the local church, if we will do that toward our elders, we will multiply their effectiveness significantly. They're going to be a lot more effective in doing the important work that they have to do if we'll honor the kind of relationship that we're supposed to have with them. We appreciate your good attention to what we've had to say uh, and hope that we will all work hard to put this into practice. No, we're not going to kiss their ring uh, like you have to kiss the Pope's ring. We're certainly not going to call them Holy Father because the Scripture even forbids us to do that. But we do have to have a right relationship with them, and I hope that uh, our lesson this morning will remind us about those important matters. Thanks for your good attention. We're going to end the lesson with a song of invitation. It may be that there's someone in our assembly this morning who not yet a Christian desires to become one through obeying the gospel plan of salvation. If that's the case, we want to assist you. That plan of salvation is here. Believe, repent, confess, be baptized. If we can help you in doing that, let us know. If we can study with you about that, please tell us so. If you're a Christian and you've fallen away from serving the Lord faithfully, come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.